0: And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring. And so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She is an icon.
2: 480 years ago, on the 8th of December 1542, a baby girl called Mary was born to Marie de Guise and James V of Scotland. Six days after Mary was born, her father died, and the mewling little babe became Queen of Scotland. Even before she had reached her twenties, the life of this Queen of Scots would be extraordinarily tumultuous. Let me give you it in a nutshell. She was promised in marriage to Prince Edward of England but wedded instead to the French Dauphin, Francois, so became Queen of France too. She was orphaned a year before she was widowed. She returned to Scotland to marry a charismatic drunkard, Henry Lord Darnley, who probably had an affair with her private secretary, David Rizzio, whom he then had killed. She was a young mother to a son when Darnley died in suspicious circumstances. She was abused by and married to a third man, James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell. Imprisoned but escaping in Scotland, she fled to England, only to be imprisoned again there. She would not escape this time. After 18 years of house arrest on the orders of Elizabeth I, she was beheaded at Fotheringhay Castle. The interiority of even famous 16th century women can be hard to access. Today's guest, however, has found a route into understanding the experiences and emotions of the Scottish Queen through exploring her through the fabrics and textiles of her life, her material world. My guest writes, Mary's elusiveness owes much to the bias of her contemporary biographers and historians, exclusively men, who documented and assessed the events of her reign and captivity through a masculine prism, one largely filtered through an oppositional Protestant perspective but there is another way to see her. My guest today is Claire Hunter, a community textile artist and textile curator for over 20 years. She's the author of the Sunday Times bestseller Threads of Life, which won the Soltaire First Book Award and was a Radio 4 Book of the Week. Her latest book is Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots and the Language of Power. This podcast goes out 480 years to the day since Mary, Queen of Scots' birth, and we're going to be talking about the amazing work that you've done on thinking about her materiality, the stuff of her life, and the meanings imbued in that. And so I thought it would be nice to start by talking about your route into this project. I know that you are... I don't know what you call yourself, a seamstress, a sewer, a tailor, a guild sister of Glasgow. And I'd be delighted to know what brought you to this and whether your experience has had a bearing on it.
3: As you say, basically, through my life, I've been involved in textiles in one way or another, Whether that was as a wee girl being taught to sew by my mum, making my own doll's clothes, as one did, and then on to 1960s fashion. Then I got much more involved in needlework as a kind of social tool because I became a community artist and started using my sewing as part of that and eventually set up a company called Needleworks in Glasgow, which really then did all sorts of projects with all sorts of groups in Scotland making large-scale textiles, which told of their history, history, their lives, their concerns, etc. I then went later in life to do me in creative writing at Dundee and for my final dissertation I thought, oh, I don't have that crime thriller inside me and I haven't got a compilation of short stories but I thought what I do know about is needlework, is sewing. And so I wrote a book called Threads of Life which was about the kind of social, emotional, political use of sewing through centuries across cultures. And in chapter three, which was a chapter on power... Mary, Queen of Scots, was the central figure. And when I started to research for that chapter, I then discovered all the primary sources which I didn't know about, which were the treasure's accounts, the inventories, which gave in much more detail what she was doing with her textiles, what she was purchasing in the way of textiles, and I thought, this is just fantastic material. And the fact that I didn't know it existed, I thought, well, maybe other people don't know this exists. And so again, I went and did another MA in historical research, looking at Mary's textiles, to see if there was a book in it. And indeed, I felt, yes, there is a book in this. And so my fascination was incremental. I've always been fascinated by Mary herself, but I didn't know so much about her material world.
2: And this is so important for a couple of reasons. One is that you talk about the role of textiles as a portable way of demonstrating wealth at this time, and you also talk about the language of textiles. Can you, at this stage, introduce us to these concepts?
3: I think in the 16th century we have to imagine that textiles really transmitted the spirit of the age, so to speak. If you went into a court in the 16th century throughout Europe, you would find it absolutely festooned in textiles. Furniture was sparse. But of textiles, there were a plenty. So you had bed furnishings, you had embroidered carpets, you had banners, you had tapestries, you had table runners, you had covers for cupboards, every single surface, never mind what people actually wore. And textiles were designed in such a way in those days to really make ample use of what light they had around them and so the flicker of candlelight was really important and many textiles were either underwoven with silver and gold thread as were tapestries in order that they would pick up they would glint in the light so you're imagining at that time what they were trying to create were places of enchantment and of course as you say they were portable and these were days when the royal courts went in progresses And when they went in progresses, the way they declared their majesty and magnificence and, indeed, as you say, their wealth and status was through the textiles that they carried with them, the emblematic banners that were carried on horseback as they progressed, and, indeed, the temporary courts they set up when they established themselves in other places. And the other thing about textiles was, of course, they were very expensive, And so they were a form of treasure. And I love the idea that Henry VIII, by the time he died, had actually hoarded over 50,000 yards of fabric in his storehouses, really because it was as important for him to have that kind of expensive, as I say, treasure, as much as his artillery, because he could pawn it. He could gift it as a diplomatic gift, and of course he could display it to show himself not just as a man of means, but also as England as a prosperous country and a country of sophistication and wealth.
2: And in this book you also make plain that it is what is in these images of the textiles that is crucial, whether that's mottos or depictions of people, symbolism, allegory... This sort of language comes out very clearly in your work and is something that's probably going to be alien to most people listening. <laughs> so tell us about that.
3: It was a visual age in the 16th century. You know, we were still talking about a large swath of literacy throughout the population. And so the visual message was all. And textiles carried them extremely potently. Obviously for the educated, they could unravel the many multi-layered messages of textiles with greater alacrity because they had that education because it was like doing visual cryptic crosswords really so you might have a emblem or a motif that seemed to be a simple flower but actually that flower would have both a symbolic meaning in terms of an aspiration or indeed an emotion or indeed it might have a herbal meaning you could then place such a motif against a motto and that would change that meaning and give it something of another range that people could then decipher if they could do if you had biblical references allegorical references and all sorts of other ways of telling of people's lineage, of their erudition and of their aspiration.
2: Could you give a couple of examples, if any come to mind? I'm thinking of things like the mirror, perhaps, or other ways of signalling a message through a picture that we might not know.
3: Yes, so if there was an embroidered mirror, then it was actually sending out the message, know yourself. Catherine of Aragon's emblem was a pomegranate. So pomegranate, obviously, just as a fruit, is a piece of nature, and women embroidered a lot from nature in those days in order to bring the outside world within their own reach. But also, a pomegranate was a symbol for fertility, but also, because of all those seeds under one peel, it was also a symbol of leadership. And you just see that one symbol, a range of meanings.
2: And when we're thinking about Mary's life, You suggest that it was in going to France that she was introduced to a world of Renaissance clothing and textiles and that we think of the Renaissance in terms of art and architecture, but actually it really was also in these worlds of crafts and textiles that we need to consider it.
3: Absolutely. I and mean, Mary's father, James V, and his grandfather, James IV, had indeed brought elements of Renaissance glory to Scotland. So it wasn't without Renaissance elegance in some of its palaces and castles. But in France, then, there was a superfluity of abundance in material terms, partly because the King of France wanted, again, to rival his main enemy, so to speak, Charles V, and so he then made his court extremely resplendent. Mary, when she was just nine years of age, she was the prospective wife of the Dauphin brought over from Scotland as that. But she had to be dressed as a political prize. And so she was dressed in Venetian satin, in cloth of silver, in gold damask, in gowns that were bordered in embroidery and festooned in jewels. And that wasn't just to show off that they had the means to do it. As I say, it was to display her publicly, as a prize that France had won, and therefore through that show their political might. And as you see, the palaces that she lived within were extraordinarily beautiful and rich in terms of the textiles they displayed.
2: So we have this young Scottish queen being brought up in France to become the Queen of France. That's the plan. And one of the things is particularly exposed to there is Roman Catholicism, Do we see the nature of Catholicism in the sort of material culture around her as well?
3: We do because, of course, she would go to Mass daily. In those days, the ecclesiastical vestments and church furnishings were exceptionally beautiful. And they were exceptionally beautiful both because of the nature of the fabrics they were made in, but also because they were, as clothes were in ceremonials, they were embellished with embroidery, again bejeweled. And that was partly because in terms of the clergy, then they wanted to show that they transmitted the light of God and through that give a spiritual element to both what they wore and what they were surrounded by. So Mary would have been brought up in that atmosphere of extraordinarily beautiful textiles around her. But of course, when she came back to Scotland, then which had just newly turned Calvinist because of the Reformation, then that material splendour was decried, so to speak. And although she was allowed to still practice Mass in her own royal chapels, then in Scotland itself, Mass was prescribed. So the idea of being surrounded anymore by that ecclesiastical finery was no longer possible.
2: Yes, that's a really interesting contrast. So Mary returns to Scotland. She's been Queen of France. Her husband, Francois II, has died at a very young age, and she's returned herself at a young age to Scotland and comes back to this country that has completely changed, as you say, and is purging that stuff that Mary will come to find so important, both her faith and in terms of the materiality.
3: And interestingly, much more in Scotland than in England, although the Reformation obviously took place in England and the cathedrals and churches and monasteries were robbed of their finery, a lot of it was actually then just appropriated by either the court, so Henry VIII and then Elizabeth I did not mind having their chapels continuously decorated in the Catholic ecclesiastical finery. But in Scotland that wasn't the case because the Calvinist Reformation that happened there basically saw any such popish trumpery as interfering with a direct route to the word of god and so they purged their churches of all that material gorgeousness and in scotland for centuries then became a place that was robbed of its arts and crafts in that decorative way
2: and as well as coming back to a protestant court she came back to a masculine court And you've done some really interesting work thinking about one way that she used fashion dolls to negotiate this. Tell me about that.
3: One of the things that was lovely about doing the book was obviously when I researched it, I thought I was going to write about Mary, Queen of Scots, but actually what I ended up writing about was Mary and women's agency in the 16th century and the material way women expressed their agency, their influence and their power. And it was Michael Pears, a Scottish historian, who then made the lateral leap between an entry in one of Mary's inventories, which is where they discovered, after she'd left Scotland and fled to England, they discovered a small cache of dolls, but not only dolls, but clothes for the dolls, farthingales, smocks, petticoats, shifts, and also 30 dolls' masks. And he managed to, in another part of the inventory, basically an annotation made of what was taken from the royal wardrobe, he found a little entry of Mary's valet de chambre, Serre du Con, giving to her tailor Jacques de Sully some beautiful fabric, cloth of silver, etc., to make dolls' clothes. And he suggested, and I think he's perfectly right, that these dolls were not just playthings for Mary and her woman, but actually they were ways for them to actually rehearse their public performances. And they were having these dolls dressed. In the kind of regalia or ceremonial clothes that they would wear, or the fun outfits they might don for mask entertainments. And then they were using them to choreograph their exits, their entrances, how they would be grouped together, and how the colours and the fabrics would work in harmony when they made their public appearances, in order to ensure that those public appearances had enormous impact. On those that saw them. Fashion dolls, they were sent by women, but also by husbands to be to brides or mothers sending them to their daughters in other countries in order that they would know what the fashion of their original country was, or indeed what the fashion of a country they were going to looked like so they could be in vogue. But also I love the fact that women also exchanged them for emotional reasons. So Catherine de' Medici, when Elizabeth I, one of her later suitors, the Duke of Anjou and Alessand, when he died, Catherine de' Medici, the woman who's meant to have done the black magic and etc., she actually then sent Mary a little doll dressed in black mourning as a gift of empathy. And indeed, when Henry II died, Catherine de Medici's husband, the French king, then she had some of her own dolls redressed in mourning garb, and she kept them till the end of her days. And there's something very touching about that.
2: What an interesting combination of the kind of the emotive and also the sense that politics is being negotiated by clothing as much as anything else. But of course, clothes are first and foremost crucially important in practical terms and especially that's got to be true in Scotland in the late 16th century. Can you talk about how clothing combated that change in the climate and what we should think of when we're thinking practically about clothes at the time?
3: Obviously we think of everybody being dressed in silks and satins and taffetas and damas all the time, but that wasn't the case. Serge came to Mary's accounts many times, and not just clothes, but when she came back to Scotland, as you say, she had to contend with the climate of Scotland, and it was going through in those early years of the 1560s, some of the most severest weather that it had ever had, said to be so cold that the sea stilled and did not move. And so one of the first things she did when she came back was to order woolen bed hangings and extra pillows and coverlets for her household because, of course, as a queen, she had a duty of care. And so it's very interesting to see those early entries in the Treasurer's accounts of her purchases, which to ensure that her household was kept warm in those severe winter months. And, of course, they were dressed in layers. So we're talking about five layers of clothing that people would wear in those days, from petticoats, etc., corsets and capes and cloaks. And, interestingly, Mary, which, again, I find fascinating... Again, one of her very early things that she did was to remove from the royal wardrobe five of her mother's cloaks, Mary de Guise's cloaks. And cloaks had a special significance. They weren't just about keeping out the cold, they were also thought to be protective in themselves, in an emotional sense. And so by reclaiming her mother's cloaks, she was then wrapping herself in her mother's protection.
2: There's something about that protection in colours as well, isn't there? You talk in your book about the symbolism of colours and the power of colours. That red, for example, could help one recover from illness.
3: Of course, colours were symbolic. Green signified rebirth, yellow signified hope, and red signified strength. So red as a colour was actually advocated by physicians to wear as an undergarment in order to retain your vigour. And indeed, when again Queen Elizabeth I was ill with fever, her physician then ordered a set of red bed hangings to basically hasten her recovery. And Marion did herself later in life when she was in Jedburgh and was very ill and near death, but did recover. She then ordered red cloth. And while it doesn't specify as it was for bed hangings, it is my fancy that it was herself draping her recovery bed in these red furnishings because it was thought to be efficacious for health and strength.
2: And one practical thing we should observe, we obviously all know that in the 16th century everything was hand-stitched, but... It's hard to get our heads round the degree of labour and skill that was involved in actually doing that, and you evoke it so well in your book. Can you give us a sense of it?
3: In those days, the tailors were predominantly men, and basically, the skill they had was not so much in sewing because women and men both did sewing. But women in the court would generally do the linens, so they would do the more intimate garments that were closer to the body. They would do the smocks, they would do the shirts etc. But men sewed the outer garments. But the outer garments, as I said, were made in the most expensive fabrics, so expensive that velvet, for instance, was sold by the quarter of an ale or a yard. And what they had to do then, in terms of the style of the time, was to construct garments that were pieced together in many different pieces, and also with pieces that were detachable. So in those days, clothes quite often were pinned together, so sleeves would be pinned to a doublet, or a front petticoat would be pinned to a skirt, in order that they could then be removed and another one put in its place. So it was expedient, but it also meant that actually when you were using something like velvet or ribbed fabrics or other kinds of fabrics which had a directional light on them, then you had to be very careful in how they were pieced so that they didn't change tone when they were actually put together. And a tailor had to be extremely skilled in that kind of piecing, both in order to be frugal with the fabric itself, but also, to say, to ensure that there would be the same shift of light as it moved over that fabric.
2: That's very interesting and the sort of thing that I would never have thought of. <laughs> On Gone Medieval, History Hits Medieval podcast, we're here to spoil you with the big topics. Possibly one of the most important
1: Anglo-Saxon discoveries since Sutton Hoo and the Staffordshire Horde. And discover people you might never have heard of. Philip Augustus, genuinely, he was a genius.
0: We explore cutting-edge research. I want to focus on the archaeology. It's a whole body of information and knowledge in its own right. And the big questions. There is
4: discussion about whether women wore knickers.
0: From everyday
1: life
2: to dynasty-shattering events.
3: The key to conquest was cavalry and
2: the short, extremely powerful bow the Mongols had.
1: I'm Dr Kat Jarman.
2: And I'm Matt Lewis.
1: Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research.
2: We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know
1: subscribe to gone medieval from history hit wherever you get your podcasts
4: if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, Better to get 20, 20, to 20, get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This message
0: comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Visit ebay.com for terms.
2: Now you think about textiles and their importance at some crucial moments in Mary's life, and I thought maybe we could... Look at some of those. You referred to the accounts of the Lord High Treasurer of Scotland that you've drawn on, and they chart the costs of magnificence after her marriage to Darnley. What can we learn about that?
3: The first one was that actually, for the first years of her reign, through the treasury accounts, Mary only ordered black. She only ordered black fabric, and although she was in mourning for her first husband, the French king, François II. Mourning generally lasted a year, and then you would move into what was called the second jewel, where you might wear grey as opposed to black. You were still in mourning, but not intensely. But actually, Mary continued to wear black. We talked about the symbolism of colour. Black was the colour of constancy, that's what it symbolised, but it was also the colour of statesmanship, So, therefore, that's perfectly reasonable that Mary should use the Treasury accounts to purchase what she saw as the gowns she had to wear for political business. But when she met Darnley, actually, for the first time a month after he arrived at court, we find Mary, through the Treasury accounts, ordering colour. Now, she did have other clothes that were of colour. They had come with her from France, or she used her own revenues to purchase those. So the fact that now she's buying clothes of colour seems to suggest that she saw Darnley as political business as opposed to love business because she used the treasury accounts to purchase those clothes. And then when she and Darnley eventually married, then just the next month they married in July and in August they purchased over a 1,000 ells of fabric. They went mad, both redressing their court in their own colours and their own emblematic embroideries, and also making sure that Darnley had the wardrobe of a king, because, of course, so many people were against that marriage, and Darnley was seen as somebody who wasn't fit to be Mary's husband, so she was making perfectly sure that he was being dressed in such splendour that nobody could not but recognise his majesty. So he had velvet-lined gloves and he had silver clothing in black velvet and yes, he was totally indulged.
2: But textiles could also be very much involved in intimate moments. You discussed the elaborate rituals around childbirth and how textiles were involved in that. Why do you think that fabrics played such an important part in that rite of passage for women?
3: women's real function, particularly queens in those days, was to produce an heir. And so pregnancy and birth was the summit of what they were there to achieve, so to speak. And when a queen became pregnant, she would then have a lying-in, which would be a month before the baby was due, and then would continue to lie-in for a month after its birth generally. And for that lying-in, sumptuous textiles would be purchased in order to create an atmosphere of potential, really. <laughs> I see it potentially successful. So we're talking of a time when the stories of queens are sadly littered with stories of stillborn babies or losing babies. For instance, Elizabeth of York, when she went in for her lying-in, then she had uh, beautiful dammer coverings of gold and velvet with ermine fur. Mary herself ordered over 180 yards of blue velvet and silk, and yards and yards of blue silk fringing. And this was the idea of cocooning the women while lying in. The curtains would be closed in order because they thought that light might damage the pregnancy. And so they were in the dark, in the candlelight, with these sumptuous bed hangings around them in order to give every possible support to a healthy child being born.
2: If we go to a less happy moment of Mary's life, we also find textiles emerging in the evidence used against Mary when she is accused of her husband's murder. This is the first I've heard of this. Tell me this idea. So,
3: Darnley was murdered in Edinburgh, and it was thought that the Earl of Bothwell was his assassin. But Mary, who was involved with Bothwell, became implicated in the crime, and basically, at the court cases that happened afterwards, investigating the murder, then various people testified for that murder. Darnley had not been well. He had then been moved to a place called Fields in Edinburgh, while Mary herself was in the Palace of Holyrood House. But Kirkcudfield had been furnished by again Survey de Cong, Mary's Val de Chambre with various furnishings for Darnley's use, and it was reported that in the week before Darnley's murder, Mary had removed some beautiful velvet furnishings, which had belonged to Mary de Guise, that the Queen had given to Darnley that previous August, that she had removed those to replace them with inferior ones. And the implication was that Mary actually had foreknowledge of the murder, that she had gone purposefully to have these bed furnishings removed so they would not be damaged in what was the explosion that demolished Kirkle Fields, although actually it didn't kill Darnley, he was actually found strangled in the gardens. But the idea was the explosion was to have killed him. There was also a report that she removed a fur coverlet, which again would have been an extremely expensive piece of furnishing from Darnley's lodgings before his actual murder. And indeed another report said she'd removed some yellow furnishings. The fact that there were so many different textiles and so many different people involved in the removal, etc., seems to suggest that actually it was all just a pack of lies. That actually none of this ever happened. Indeed, some of the things like the yellow furnishings were not destroyed. So we don't know the truth, as we don't know with much of the truth That's another story. But it's an interesting one that people chose textiles because they were associated so strongly with women and with Mary as the means through which to implicate and accuse her of that murder.
2: And clearly they're thought of as something so valuable that she will intervene in this way in order to save them, even though it's going to make her look guilty. That's the sort of thinking there, that a queen and a woman would be attached to furnishings in this way.
3: Absolutely. So probably textiles were purposefully chosen as the probably falsified evidence against her because it implicated her even further.
2: There are so many curious moments in this story that you've unpicked of Mary and fabrics. One later one, quite soon after this, of course, Mary marries Bothwell, but Bothwell, of course, has also raped Mary some weeks earlier. And you're very clear that that is indeed what's happened. It seems strange then that we find Mary giving him furs from her mother as a wedding gift. I thought this was really interesting that this sentimental material gift is given to a man who has abused her. I suppose it shows us the really complicated nature that women sometimes have with people who are abusive to them.
3: No, I think it shows more the complicated nature of the language of textiles because other biographers have decried the gift that Mary gave of these furs, which were taken from an old gown of Mary de Guise's as being kind of a second-hand cast-off that she was then just giving in tokenistic terms to the man who damaged her. But in actual fact, my reading of it is by giving Boswell something that had indeed not just belonged to Mary's mother, but been worn by Mary's mother being close to her body and therefore was an intimate gift she was actually passing on to Boswell the duty of care that had been her mother's so if you imagine that she was then taking something of her mother's and bestowing it on Boswell in the hope that it would actually bring him to care for her in a protective manner And, of course, she had got involved with Boswell because he was her martial champion and because she wanted his protection. She did not necessarily, at that stage, any intimacy between the two of them, but she had definitely sought his protection. And so it was a reminder to him of what his role as her husband would be.
2: Are you suggesting, then, that it is to remind him, to provoke him into that kind of behaviour towards her? Or that clothes also somehow carried within them some sort of quality of the wearer to the next wearer?
3: Absolutely. So people believed that the qualities inherent in a textile could be transmitted to someone else. So Mary would gift her own clothes to some of her own women and to women that she wanted to have as allies. And by doing that, she was gifting herself because these were clothes that she herself had worn, which was important. And you've got examples of that from Henry VIII through to Elizabeth I, etc. Elizabeth I, interestingly, did then appropriate the coronation robes of her sister, Mary Tudor. But in a sense, she did that as an act of rivalry because at one point it looked as if Mary Tudor was going to write her out of the succession. And now here was Elizabeth finally queen. And so by taking her sister's gowns and wearing those for her own coronation for Elizabeth, that was an act of defiant triumph.
2: Now, to cut a long story short, (laughs) Mary is, first of all, arrested, escaped, deposed, escapes to England. And so we find her, before too long, under house arrest, effectively, on behalf of Elizabeth I in England and with... The woman we know as Bess of Hardwick, the Countess of Shrewsbury and her husband. And I was delighted to read in your book that you had been walking around Hardwick and you had seen the We Are Bess exhibition. And you'd seen the fabric that Bess used herself to celebrate the lives of worthy women. So this is the woman that Mary now comes in contact with. Tell me a bit about this phase of her life. I imagine
3: Mary's first experience in those first years of captivity were in a sense quite schizophrenic because on one side she was trying desperately to regain her position as Queen of Scotland and trying to woo France, trying to woo Elizabeth, trying to be restored, basically. At the same time, having gone through imprisonment in Scotland and then the deprivation she went when she had to flee, she cut her hair, she had a desperate flight through Scotland to actually escape, and then coming to England and not knowing what was ahead of her, and having a lot of her household staff no longer with her, including only one of her four Marys, Ashley Bess of Harbour must have been like a breath of fresh air because Bess was an energetic, spirited woman who didn't have the complications of Mary's royal status and political associations. She was an independent woman. So I think Mary had two experiences. One was being in captivity, yes, but surrounded by people like Bess and others of her household, where they could sit together sewing, and I imagine laughing, And telling stories, sharing confidences, etc., which must have been healing in one way for Mary to have that company, and particularly the company of women, which she had been denied as for so long by that time, and be with as Bess was another mother, because Mary had become a mother but had left James in Scotland, and Bess had eight children, so they could talk about motherhood, they could talk about children, and as women share stories of their relationships, what had gone wrong, what they had lost, and the people they loved. At the same time, Mary was obviously also dealing with her own political crisis. So she had these two aspects to her life that were working in harmony. With Bess... She found a collaborator. There are reports of Mary sewing in Scotland, but we don't know really what she sewed, and there's none of the remains of what she did in Scotland. But in England, she found a partner in crime in Beth, and much of what they devised together, an extraordinary set of bed furnishings which were about over a 100 little what we call slips, which are small pieces of embroidery, which would have then been assembled onto a larger piece of cloth and then become bed furnishings. And you can see that there's mischief in their designs for those bed furnishings, and they would have collaborated together and, in a sense, pushed each other on to be more mischievous in what they were doing. So one of my favourites, if you want, is one that made it of a cat and she took the original design from a black and white woodcut by Conrad Gesner, who had created these kind of encyclopedias of flora and fauna, and so she took this cat, but she chased it a little to make its whiskers a little more aggressive, make its tail a little bit longer, and also because she was embroidering it, then she could actually colour it. So she coloured it red, brown red, to symbolise, personify Elizabeth I. And then into that design of just a cat, Mary inserted a little mouse. And the little mouse is just scurrying by the cat's paw and it's very stolid, it's lumping, it's a very sorry little mouse and basically it personifies Mary herself and her kind of desperate immobility, both physical, emotional and political, that she was experiencing at that time. And tellingly, the cat's paw is very firmly pressed down on the mouse's tail. So in that cat we have... Mary as captive
2: yes that's very powerful and I'm struck by what you say about Bess and Mary being able to share that experience of loss I mean I guess Bess must have been a bit like a mother to Mary as well but she was 20 years older than her and we forget that Mary's still very young in her 20s at this point in time and Bess herself has experienced infant deaths she's lost two of her children in infancy and now Mary's been parted from her son when he's 10 months old Do we see motifs of loss in what they create?
3: Yes, very much so. I mean, Beth of Hardwick, in one of the pieces that she did, which she basically devoted to William Cavendish, who was her second husband and who she had her children with, she then surrounds that image with symbols of loss, a broken mirror, shards of glass. Mary, she made for James in her captivity because she had her letters censored, And her voice was silenced. And also her story was being rewritten by her detractors and she was said to be an adulteress and a murderess and James was being educated to believe that's what his mother was in the Protestant court in Scotland. Then she made for him a set of bed valances and curtains which basically had embroideries, again, in small slips that told of her truth, so to speak, that told of her emotional and political truth. But sadly, a lot of those images are tragic so they are a fallen tree an apple that's eaten by canker a broken ship's mast images like that that are about captivity in itself and also they cover mary's conflicted relationship with elizabeth there's one of two women on a wheel of fortune sadly those bed furnishings didn't survive through the centuries but we have William Drummond of Hothendorn sent Ben Johnson a detailed description of them, so we know their content, which is fantastic, because generally in the treasurer's accounts, we have the description of the fabric, we have the colour, we might have where the fabric came from, and we have the cost, but we rarely have a description of what the content was. But in that letter to Ben Johnson, then William of does lay out what each of those slips shows. And in that we see how Mary used her embroidery in captivity as a way, in a sense, to express her emotions—both despair and fury—at times.
2: And this is the central idea. This is at the heart of your book. It's fascinating, sense that embroidery, sewing could be a political weapon. That if everything that you're sending out that is written is censored, that there is a way yet to express oneself in that moment. And also what's fascinating about it is that it's something that men at the time overlooked and men in the centuries since have overlooked. Even though men are tailors and often have sewing expertise, this type of activity has so much been put in the sphere of women's stuff that it has perhaps been somewhat over looked, although clearly Ben Johnson was getting a description of it, so maybe I'm over the point. What do you think? No, I think it could be
3: read, but the interesting thing about it is that actually symbolism is always ambiguous. So the lovely example of that is when Mary was plotting with the Duke of Norfolk for them to marry, to overthrow Elizabeth, and for them to take on the throne of England and return England to Catholicism. Then Mary sent Norfolk gift of a cover of a cushion that she had embroidered herself and the cushion shows a hand with a full of lace around it which is holding a pruning knife and it's pruning back the dead infertile vine which personifies Elizabeth in order to allow the fecund younger vine i.e Mary to flourish and in that same embroidery we have a windmill which stands for the kind of vacillation of the English royal religion in terms that it had shifted from Catholicism to Protestantism and back over time. And indeed, then a very sturdy, what would be a Catholic church with a very triumphant flag. And it also has two birds winging free, which presumably are Norfolk and Mary. Now, the plot was discovered. Norfolk was imprisoned in the tower and eventually he was executed. And the cushion was sighted in that trial as evidence but it could not be proven because it might just have been a very innocuous embroidery of vines being pruned
2: plausible deniability yes total ambivalence
3: absolutely total ambivalence
2: finally we come to 1587 and the year that mary was executed and you say there is a final material drama at her death can you explain that
3: So basically, Mary appears for her execution in her kind of iconic black velvet dress and white veil, black for constancy, the veil for spirituality and innocence. And then her woman unpinned her garments to reveal her gown underneath, and that is coloured blood red the colour of Catholic martyrdom. And you can imagine Mary in that room where the great and the good have gathered to witness that execution, all men, all clad in black, Mary entering in black, and then suddenly she becomes the central focus of red, of martyrdom, of Catholicism. And it is her final defiant material drama, and she played out her material potency to the end. And, of course, they burnt everything that she wore that day so that nothing could remain of her as a relic.
2: One thing I was struck by in reading this book is that it is both a history book and a kind of memoir. And there are some very evocative moments where you draw on your own experience. And you dedicate the book to Nicola Sturgeon. And I wondered if there was a meaning there that one should try and read...
3: Nicola Sturgeon is the second female ruler of Scotland as the First Minister, and she was next in line to Mary Queen of Scots in that in gender terms. But also, I use a quote from Elizabeth I, and basically, that is about the fact that women in positions of power have to be very careful to not have a stain on their clothes, or else it will be noted. Less will be thought of them because of that, and I think women who are in the public life today still have to be extremely conscious of how they present themselves in sartorial messaging, because for good or for bad, then the media will pick up on any possible straying from what is seen to be acceptable in clothing of women, which is still very interesting, I think still carries on.
2: It absolutely does. So clothing continues to be used to castigate women, but also can be used by them to be a means of power. Thank you so much for this really fascinating new way of seeing this familiar character and understanding what lay in her heart by what she had around her. Thank you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to know more about Mary, Queen of Scots, I'd like to recommend two of our previous podcasts to you. One is with Professor Kate Williams and is simply called Mary, Queen of Scots and delves deeper into the facts and circumstances of Mary's life. The other is A Tudor True Crime, The Murder of Rizzio, with crime novelist Denise Minor, which looks at her retelling of a tale of sex, seduction, secrets, and lies in the court of Mary, Queen of Scots, and how she watched poor David Rizzio killed in her presence. It's a wonderful one that explores the relationship between history and fiction, and how the very best fiction can help us get at the truth. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter Tudor Tuesday so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast, and please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at Not Just Tudors, or by email Not Just The at historyhit.com.
0: and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
2: History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful.